I, uh, I find, all of us do this, every single person does this, but, and we know we do it, and we often don't stop, and that is live in the echo chamber of our own thoughts, and so we have certain feelings about things, and it seems like the longer we live, the more sure we get of ourselves, which is, I understand, the more confident we get in our opinions about how right we are and how wrong everybody else is on basically anything, right? On, uh, on, on um, how we educate, on what type of friends are the right kind of friends to have, what type of people do we need to avoid, what kind of money should we give where, and uh, what, what uh, denomination, you know, is the most right, which, which uh, you know, like, is it this evangelical church or that evangelical church or that Protestant less evangelical church down the road? And so we all start to do this, and I understand it, where we, we start to then listen to podcasts or read books or follow people on social media who we generally tend to agree with. And we, we generally say, hey, I, I agree with these folks. I, I feel good about what they have to say. And so we just kind of stay right there. And I understand part of that is just a survival mechanism. Because you can't keep up with all the ways people feel about things. I can't keep up with all the ways people feel about things. I just need a few. Give me like three and I'm good. But when you stand back and you go, is this healthy? Is it healthy for me to only know how I feel about things, and talk to people who only agree with how I feel about things? we probably say no. And I even, th- I even think that, that studies have shown, research has shown, that more and more of us only listen to people who would agree with us or affirm us versus people who might even challenge us. And that can be politically, socially, economically. They just kind of go, hey, we're going we're gonna to be here and we're going to be there. That's okay. I know we do it. But echo chambers can be a dangerous place. Because how do you know if what you are feeding yourself is right? How do you know? You know, it's right because I feel it's right. Well, how do you know how you feel matters at all? How do you know, how do you know that your perspective is the right perspective? Well, because I've seen it be true. How? Why? What makes it be true over something else? It's sometimes like when you break out of it, it's kind of like waking up from a dream. I remember... Like, I remember a few dreams as a kid, and one dream that I had was I was in my house, in, like, my first house I grew up in, in, like, downtown Tomball, and I was, I was in bed, and in my dream, my paternal grandfather comes up, and he's talking to me, like, sitting kind of on the dresser, talking to me, and I'm still in bed, and I'm talking to him in my dream, and I wake up, and I'm still talking. I'm actually verbalizing words to my grandfather who is not there. And I had this moment, and you probably had this moment where you're like, I'm not sure which one was real. I really, okay, like, I'm talking. Did he disappear? He was just here. But, but honestly, if anybody in this room has come to faith at a time that you can remember, time that you can recall, uh, where maybe, maybe you weren't at a young age, you go, I'm not really sure when I believe, or you have kind of a more of a moment where you recognize that shift, then it is kind of like waking up from a dream. You know, it, it is like moving from some place where you were so sure of how the world worked and being brought into a place where you are a little undone. 
And it's interesting for us as Christians because we want to be people who cling to things that are true. Who love things that are true. Not things that are false. But we can get really lathered up about things that are false because they feel true. And forget the things that are true because we're so caught up in being sure we're right. And Christians should be the most investigative or investigative. They should be the most curious, the least afraid of being challenged because if what we believe is true and if Jesus is who he says he is, then there's really nothing to hide from. And we also recognize as citizens from another world, we could use this in the realm of politics, as citizens of another kingdom, we will not feel at home in any place. We're not going to feel at home in any neighborhood. We're not going to feel at home in any political party. We're not going to feel at home at any earning income bracket. Like, because everything's going to feel off. Because it is. It is off. And what we get today as we're continuing in this kind of John 7 and 8, finishing out, having finished out the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus speaking about how he's the light of the world, and the religious leadership getting angry with Jesus because they're convinced he is someone, but not the someone he actually is. They're convinced he's a liar, and they're convinced he's a sinner, and they're convinced that he's wrong. And you're convinced that he's hurting what is true. And this morning in this passage, Jesus takes a moment and talks about what is true. And he talks about how the religious leaders are not who they think they are. And they shouldn't have the confidence that they do. That they've operated in an echo chamber controlled by the devil. And that's why they cannot hear him. And he challenges their identity. And he challenges their confidence. And he challenges their self-righteousness. And he tells them those who are truly his. And so we'll see a few things. We'll see Jesus tell us what it means or how we know we're disciples. We'll see Jesus tell us what true freedom really is. What is true freedom? And then we'll hopefully, as it's done, recognize the battle that we are in and that it is a battle for truth. With the challenge, I mean, I know you can go home after this, but like the challenge is, are we listening to the Lord? Are we listening to him? Are we giving our attention to him? And here's the hard thing about that, just to lay my cards on the table. All of us exist in a world that is antagonistic to the message of the gospel. And you spend more time listening to people who might hold some of your values, but don't hold your Lord. Who might feel the same way you do on how one should spend, but they don't believe Jesus is Lord. They might feel similar to you and in your view of parenting, and they will not commit to Jesus being Lord. They don't take their lead from him. 
And so the challenge for the believer in the room as we hear this is to go, can we, by God's grace, listen to him and not be concerned primarily with the things that lather us up? And we start with a statement about being a disciple. This actually builds on verse 30. We didn't talk about verse 30 much last week because... It's it's the springboard into verse 31. But verse 30 reads this, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. But then John goes right into, in continuing the narrative, in verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and remember, sometimes belief in John can have some air quotes around it. There's true belief and there's false belief. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So religious researchers know this, that if people self-identify as religious or evangelical, they know that that actually doesn't determine how many Christians exist. Right? Like even even if we just took the attendance, you know, and I said, hey, on a Sunday morning at Genesis, we have X amount of people present. That doesn't tell you there are X amount of Christians. It just tells you there are X amount of people at this church on a Sunday. So when we see the word believe in the Gospel of John, our ears should perk up. Because it doesn't mean everyone who truly believes. But that's how we understand belief. We understand belief is, is faith and trust in what Jesus has said. But John is developing something, really showing us through the whole of the gospel that you must truly believe. He wants you to believe. He wants you to know. But Jesus is going to challenge those who might on a survey go, yes, I believe. And let them know how you can tell. And it's not just a statement on a survey, and it's not just thinking Jesus is cool. It's not just thinking that he can teach well. It's not just thinking that he is helpful. He says this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That is a litmus test for those who follow. A disciple is one who follows. It is a follower. Other, other religious leaders have disciples as well. You might even hear cult leaders say, and the disciples of. Because it's a, it's a phrase that, that the Bible doesn't own. It's one where we go, oh yeah, they're disciples of so-and-so, or they're followers of so-and-so. It's that idea. But Jesus is going to say, if you really are my disciple, it will be because you abide in my word. We'll see in a moment that that means that it means abiding in what is true. The idea being that remaining in truth demonstrates our identity as disciples. Now this gets a little hairy for us. Because Jesus is challenging all those who believed. He's letting them know, if you really abide in my word, you're my disciple. Not just if you like what I say. He's going to speak on abiding later, so we're going to have another, at least another sermon on abiding. But that idea is to remain in his word. Remain in his truth. Here's why this, that kind of phrase is hard for us. Because it, 
I would guess, polling the room, all of you, all of you who love the Lord would say, I should read the Bible more. It would be helpful if I read more. It would be helpful if I prayed more. It would be helpful if I remained more. It would be helpful if I did more. And so we might see something like this and get afraid that we haven't demonstrated enough fidelity to the Lord to really be his disciple. But the problem with that is it puts all the burden on us to prove ourselves to God. If I memorize more, if I read more, if I pray more, if I'm more serious, if I take more classes, if I go to seminary, if I do all these things, then I will know I'm a disciple. Rather than recognize that the quality and rhythm of one's life is dependent upon the truth of Christ, the truth of his word. We are often stock watchers. And if you're a stock watcher right now in 2022, I uh, pray God's mercy for you. But we kind of just go, how am I feeling with God today? Had a bad day, had a fight in the morning, not really feeling good at work. Um, My abiding quotient is like at a negative four and a half right now. If I died right now, I probably wouldn't be with Jesus. He'd probably be mad at me. Because we're always taking that inventory based upon how we just feel in the moment. Versus the pattern of life that is measured by Christ's word. Christ's word. So it isn't, the response isn't, if I read the Bible every day, and we want you to read all the time. If you're in a D group, I'm out sitting there poorly reciting Philippians 1.10 today, right? Like, and it is my, you're trying to like get it right, and I get it wrong all the time, and Jason is gracious enough to not get my, you know, so ever, ever so, and I flip my word order because the ESV is so screwy with that. Always gets the word order in a way you don't want to, like, I don't know human talks like that, but, you know, it's what we use. And so, you know, if I get it wrong, it's God like, well, there's a minus, minus three for Hans today. He really thought he was going to do better on his memory. Versus leaving the whole of life open to all of Christ's truth to be affirmed where I can be encouraged, affirmed, to be challenged, to align myself with what is true. The truth of Scripture is the word we have, inspired by the Spirit, so that we can understand our God better. That a disciple remains in what is true. The reason that this answer cannot possibly be, you must read your Bible every day, aside from the fact that that's just a new law, is because For the bulk of church history, they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have have printed copies. There's no, like, you probably have more Bibles in your house than cookbooks. Some of you are like, what's a cookbook? I'm like, well, it used to be, never mind. Um, You mean those things on the internet that have stories for a long time and then just give you the ingredient list? And like that, exactly, that thing. You know, when friends are really hot in the summer and they want to drink... I don't know, just say pour a glass of lemonade. But Christians forever, forever is an overstatement. But from the beginning of the church until the printing press, 
could abide in Jesus' word. Not by just conjuring it up, but right staying connected to the faith family, continuing to hear it, continuing to expose themselves to truth. It isn't to say you must do X, Y, and Z so that you know, but remaining, walking in the ways of Jesus as revealed in Scripture. So must you be a reader in order to be a Christian? No. Must you be a good memorizer? No. You have to trust in the message of the gospel that Christ saves and align your life week by week, month by month, year by year by his truth. And that, the idea of the word would be perseverance. The staying in truth is an identifier of a disciple. And there's a little bit of a warning to us in that, that perseverance really is a mark of our faith, that we remain in Jesus' word. Now, again, I'm not going to tell you, is your stock going to be higher you know, the day you die as it's ever been? I have no idea. I have no idea what any one moment will beget. But as you remain with Christ, understanding his faithfulness, growing in knowledge of him, aligning your life to that truth, not just what you think would be best. You are abiding, you are remaining, you are staying. That his life, his way, his words are the air that we bring and breathe. So a couple of challenges that I think about those in, in the room. I think of students, right? Middle schoolers, high schoolers, elementary kids who might be in the room. Is that sometimes Jesus is really just their parents' fad. And you do feel this pressure, I get it, to go... I feel like I have to like Jesus because if I don't, my parents would be mad at me. You don't necessarily want to say, I'm not sure. Like, I struggle with this being true. I don't, I don't know what it means. This is hard for me. I'm just a kid. I don't know how I feel about every piece of doctrine. I don't know how I feel. Like, I don't have that level of confidence. But there are times, and believe me, that kind of doubt, I get it. Talk to parents, talk to friends, like we all have it. But then there's the fact that for some, Jesus really just is a fad. And when Jesus loses popularity, we walk away. That's what happened with the feeding of the 5,000 and what came after him with the teaching, John chapter 6, where that's, the, that's really the pinnacle of the numbers of Christ's ministry. And then he starts teaching in a confusing way for them because they just like his popularity. They want him to be the Messiah right there, set him up as king. And he starts talking about how you must eat his flesh and drink his blood, which means find your source of life in him. Find yourself in him. It's the same theme, remaining, abiding. And what happens in John chapter 6? If you were with us and you remember... People just started leaving. They said, never mind. I wanted a king, and I wanted to kind of be in on the ground floor of the Jesus startup. And it sounds like that's gonna, the bar's a little higher than I thought. Because, you know, I can't just donate $20 and be in and get a Jesus t-shirt. I have to give my life. I'm cool. So the question, Jesus fad, or is Jesus life? Young professionals, young marriage in the room, 
it gets kind of cool when you get out of the house and out of college and you start making your own money. But that often, isn't it sometimes the test to go, was it, was it just cool that I followed Jesus? Like when I had no, like I was kind of limited in what I could do and now I'm not. And maybe I kind of want to live for myself for a little while. That's kind of fun. It's the same kind of thing. These are not like if you do X, then Y must happen, right? Then you aren't following Jesus. But just to go, are we, are we listening to the voice of our Lord or are we listening to the rhythms of our world and what's important? The world's going to tell you to eat, drink, and be merry. Live your life however you want it that that's really where you'll be happy. But anybody who's tried that can tell you it doesn't last. It doesn't last. To those with families, maybe your families are young, maybe they're, you know, they're still in the home, maybe some are out, some are in. You sometimes wonder, is, is Jesus, is faith in Christ or getting your kids to church just a a nice way to control your kid's behavior. Like it, just, it works better than something else. And so we go to church because they're going to be taught good things, and they are. Those kids' workers bust it week after week to teach our children about Jesus. But if we just use this as kind of a convenient way to control behavior then we're not actually abiding in Jesus. We're just using Jesus. We're using him when he's convenient and then moving on. To those who might be retired or empty nesters, the challenge is, have you outgrown growing? I've seen it before where people try really hard to walk with the Lord for 10, 20, 30 years, and then Maybe they lose their marriage, or maybe life changes, and they just start living for themselves. It's kind of like, well, the faith worked for me to do the things I needed it to do for a big run of life, but now it's time to live for myself. And that's what the world's going to teach you, right? Save up enough money while you work so that when you don't work, you can just do whatever. I'd like to end that with do whatever the Lord puts before you. Like, whatever he puts before you. If that's back to work, if that's mission field, if that's traveling around the world encouraging pastors or missionaries, if that's what's before you, great. The Lord puts before you, not just whatever you want. Remaining in truth, abiding in Jesus' word, living our lives according to what he has said. That's how we know if we've wandered. Is that our concern? Is that our concern? In Genesis, we'll encourage you to be in a community group or be in a D group or do our reading plan or do our memory work. And all of those are simply mechanisms to get us to engage with God's truth. To get us in habits that are helpful for our growth and reminders of what is true because isn't it true that like you can read the scriptures in the morning and by the afternoon you're not living in alignment with them to go back and and be recalibrated because I need it all the time 
To go, oh, I'm not supposed to be mad. I'm not supposed to always just yell at my kids or bark at them, or right? Like my, my, my response to a situation is not just raise my voice. Right? Like that's not, it's not the way to parent. But it feels right. And it's all I have sometimes. Like I got, I got one tool left and it's my volume. But with the Spirit, I have Him at my disposal. To be what the Lord would have me in any moment. That's how we know if we really are his disciples. Now that was a lot for just verse 31. And that was on purpose. Because it's so important for us to go, not, well I know I did a thing, so I must be in. I liked what Jesus said when he was teaching at the, you know, the Feast of Tabernacles, so I know I'm in. I listened to a podcast about what it means to be a Christian, so I know I'm in. I, I got baptized, even though I didn't know what baptism was, so I know I'm in because, because Christians are baptized. All these things that we use to feel better, and Jesus doesn't put it on any specific work, does he? Remain in his word. And he is the word. To remain in him is the mark. And he says, in the second half of or, uh, 31, 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you remain in my word, You're my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what Jesus is about to say is that true freedom is freedom from sin. And you're going to see this in the exchange that he has with the religious leadership and how he's teaching is that they are in two different worlds. And the religious leadership is going to say true freedom is being a good Israelite, belonging to Abraham by biology. And he is going to say, nope. True freedom is freedom from sin. You will know truth because Jesus is truth. Truth will set you free. John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But there's, of course, the response. Smart people have responses. There's this rebuttal in verse 33. And they answered, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Their argument is not. Now, if you think about your Old Testament history, and you know that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were both taken into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, respectively, then how in the world could they say, we've never been slaves to anyone? When they were taken captive by two neighboring nations for their disobedience. It's because they would view themselves as Israelites as free because of their association with Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them, so are you. Abraham, their attentiveness to Moses and the law. And so they viewed themselves as going, we can't possibly not be free because we have Abraham. You can check the chromosomes. We're in. Doesn't matter where we are. Doesn't matter what nation we might be in. We are free simply because 
We are offspring of Abraham. What in the world do you mean we must become free? And Jesus is about to put it in their face. When he says in verse 34, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I thought we were talking about offspring. What do you mean sin? Again, Jesus is always talking in a way that an earthly mind does not hear. Anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. It's there for a time to do a task and then gone. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, then you are free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Okay, he's about to escalate the tension quite a bit here. Because he recognizes that they are offspring of Abraham, but he is not saying they are spiritual descendants of Abraham. Because true believers believe by faith. And that's the same in the Old Testament. That's the same in the New Testament. You do not find salvation because of what you do. That is never the case. It is by grace through faith always. And so Jesus challenges their understanding and says, Yeah, I know you're offspring, but you don't listen to him. You listen to your father. He's about to flip that on their heads. We know this idea developed later in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in Romans. He's speaking about faith and belief and who believes and who doesn't. And he says this in Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham, not, not all are children of Abraham, because there is offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named promise. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. This piece continues throughout scripture. It is believing in the promise that marks you as the Lord's, not your genealogical heritage. I don't care how much time you spend on ancestry.com, that's not going to get you into the kingdom. You can swab your cheek, you can send it in, you can realize that you're married to a distant cousin and it's a little uncomfortable. You can do all those things. And it does not save you. And you can realize that 45 generations back, there was royalty in your line. And everyone's going to look at you and go, so what? That'll be 495, right? A gallon. It's important for us to recognize this. And we can make, even though I would guess most in the room, if not all, are not Israelites by birth. We don't belong to the Jewish heritage biologically. We can fall into the same trap of thinking that being involved at a certain church or having a certain pastor or going to certain things marks us as Christ's. The one that I, I still remember that I heard as a, as a high schooler was, it was something to the effect of this. 
I totally understand church and Christianity because I used to be at church every time the doors were open. Great. Great. If you go to the Astros game every time they play in Houston, it doesn't make you a ball player. It, it, it doesn't make you equipped and prepared to hit a baseball or throw a baseball or catch a baseball. Showing up doesn't get you there. If it did, I would be on the Astros by now. Right? Like that would be my life goal. If I just show up, I get there. So showing up in churches does not make a Christian. But what are they trying to do here? They're trying to go, no, we really are spiritual and we really are hearing truth because we're religious leaders. We have Abraham as our father. Look at this temple. Look at what we do. Look at how we teach. We must have it right. Well, Jesus is about to tell them something that I don't think they'd want to hear. And quite honestly, I don't want to hear. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, now listen to his wording. If you were Abraham's children, think about the way Paul uses the language of offspring. Even though he hadn't written that yet, right? Scriptures are consistent through and through. If you really were Abraham's children, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. And what are the works Abraham did? Believing God and being credited to him as righteousness. If you were Abraham's offspring, you would be doing what Abraham did, which is trusting in the promise. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth about God. That is not what Abraham did. So he's going to flip it and go, clearly you aren't Abraham's offspring because you want to kill me. And honestly, Jesus is the promise. He's the Messiah. He's the one through whom we find freedom from sin. And the religious leaders want to have nothing to do with it. They want to have nothing to do with him. You were doing the works your, fa your father did. They reply, we were not born of sexual immorality. Not really sure exactly why that phrase is there. Some think that it's a dig on Jesus' origin, his, you know, the immaculate conception. You know, some, some think that it's a dig kind of going, we know where we came from, you don't know where you came from. Right? The story of your origins are different here, man. So that little bit of arrogance, which does fit the constant theme of the religious leadership in the Gospel of John. We weren't. We don't have the same story you have. But still, as much as that fits, the challenge there, why that's there, not, not precisely sure. Other than to go, we have a different origin. We know where we came from. We have one father, even God. Jesus says, because they're trying to claim their identity again, we know our father came from Abraham. We belong to God. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. Which just flip back to the beginning of the passage. If you are truly my disciple, you will remain in my word. If God were truly your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Look at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. 
With that phrasing, Jesus flips the whole argument on its head because no longer is it about spiritual descendants or uh, physical descendants. It is about those who truly believe. And what he's saying is, even though you might have the biology of Abraham, you don't have the faith of Abraham. And if you don't have the faith of Abraham, you're not doing the work of Abraham, you're doing the work of the adversary. Ugh. I think one of the hardest things for us to do, Christians here in Spring, Texas, living in and around the Bible Belt, the hardest thing for us to do in a world that values moral relativism and that nothing matters, it's just kind of what you want to be and how you want to be it, live how you want, right? In a world that just says, I have to live my truth and you live your truth, and if that's true for you and that's true for you, that works. In a world that applauds that, it is rather uncomfortable to hear what Jesus says and basically go, if it's not applauding and praising Jesus and reflecting Jesus, then it's not a work of God, it's a work of the devil. That's uncomfortable for me. But what does it also do? It heightens the battle that we are in. It increases our need to pray because the battle is not won by words and it's not won by fancy arguments and it's not won by making somebody feel humiliated. It's won by the Spirit revealing the need to a broken man, woman, or child and bringing them from death to life. And that doesn't happen exclusively by my effort to make it happen. It is God's work. Now listen to how Jesus describes Satan. I do not think this is metaphorical, just some kind of random concept of evil. That Satan is real. A real, I can't even say person, a real angelic being, dead set on lying and leading people astray. Dead set. Listen to how Jesus describes this. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Which puts a new kind of uh, power behind the phrase, you're believing a lie. Right? And even a Christian can do that, can't they? Or they just give themselves over to maybe a, a wrong way of thinking some wrong way of believing, maybe even something that the Lord has said about them in Scripture that they will just disregard. I'll give you an example. There's, a, we call it a doctrine or an idea in Scripture called the priesthood of all believers. Priesthood of all believers would mean 
that God has by the Spirit and what we have in Christ endowed us to be able to minister to and for one another. That we are, we are free to, we're gifted to do this, we have the Spirit, we must do this to live out the life that God has put before us. And to minister to the people that God has put in our midst. We have that power and place in Christ. And yet so often, don't we trick ourselves into the lie that we do not have the skills We do not have the words. We do not have the ability to be an encouragement to a person in their time of need. Could it be that we have been duped into not realizing what God has given us in his spirit to build up the body according to what God would have? We just go, I can't do that. I've never been in that situation. I've never dealt with that. I've never had that. It doesn't matter because you have God. But this happens all over where we believe things that aren't true about what we have or what we do or who we are. We have a hard time believing that we're fully forgiven because we know ourselves. We know what we do and feel and think and how we talk. I've told you about my paranoia that one day I'm going to get up here and just start cussing, right? Like, it was like, I got these irrational, stupid things I think about as a pastor. Because when you talk for a living and you have hours upon hours and weeks of months of recordings of you saying stuff, you're bound to say stupid stuff. So, we have to remember who we are. We have to remember what is true. And how do we do that? Let's go back to the beginning. Remain in Christ's word. Listen to what he says. He responds to the religious leadership, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Because they're in the echo chamber. Of deceit. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The battles that we fight, the scripture would say this in the book of Ephesians, they're not against flesh and blood. That the people around us are not our enemy. The ones who know the Lord, who feel like they're getting in our way, and the ones who don't know the Lord, that if only they knew the Lord, they'd stop getting in our way, which we know is not true. See exhibit A, the beginning one. right? Like, like it's, that's us. The battle is for a right understanding of, of the Lord Jesus, a right understanding of who we are, a right understanding of what we need, a right understanding of what he brings, salvation, freedom from sin, which in and of itself is hard enough to believe. The freedom from sin is not freedom from sinning particularly. It is freedom from the power and control of sin in the life of a person who has placed their faith in Jesus. 
You are not under law, but under grace. The argument in Romans 6, 1 through 14, you can follow it right on through. That you, are, you are a different person in Christ, and you have been set free from the thing, sin, that is keeping you from what is true. The battle is for what is true. We can be set free from sin in Christ. And only he can reveal that need so that we can surrender. And even for the Christian in the room, that you might continually recognize your need, continually recognize what is offered, and trust by remaining in Christ's word, trust that what he says, what he reveals, what he speaks is what is best. And that's really hard because we have a lot of voices telling us however you feel is best. Whatever you want to do is best. But what is best is to live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus, that trusts in him, that lives for him, that abides in him.